Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to the pod. We are picking up today in the book of 2 Samuel, and um, we stopped kind of in the middle of a story in some ways because First and Second Samuel apparently were originally one scroll, and um, they were later broken into two what we call books, and uh, it's all one story. Uh, we've been following the kingship of Saul. We're in the what we would call the United Kingdom, no, not Great Britain, but the <laughs> Israel's United Kingdom. Um, and we've been following David a lot. Uh, he's kind of been rising to power. He's been anointed king, but he is not the king. Um, of course, Saul has just been killed at the end of 1 Samuel. So the, the content of 2 Samuel is going to really take us through the life of David and his kingship. I and mean, we've already had a lot of stories, David and Goliath, famously, in 1 Samuel. But um, this is also where we start to get some overlap with some of the Old Testament books. Um, if you're reading through... Um, Samuel, the books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles, you'll start to notice, wait a minute, like there's a, there's a lot of overlap here, mm-hmm. especially when you get to Chronicles. And so Chronicles is kind of its own set. Uh, Samuel and Kings kind of go together yep. and tell the story of Israel's kingdom, the United Kingdom, and then the Divided Kingdom in the books of Kings. Um, but First Chronicles is actually going to kind of cover the life of David. Um, and so in the episode today, we're going to be focusing on 2 Samuel and kind of walking through that book. But if you want to read First Chronicles, you'll get kind of a parallel account of with a different focus. And we'll talk more about that kind of as we go through. And it's just important to remember, this is the same David that in 1 Samuel 16, as Samuel was in the household of Jesse, looking for the next king of Israel, that God said to him, you know, don't look at the appearance or at the height of his stature, talking about the brothers of David. Um, but God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it was David that God had chosen. And so I, I say that from the preface, Stephen, just so we can get it out on the table that this is a man after God's own heart. But we're going to read a lot of things in this story that don't really reflect that sometimes. And mm-hmm. it makes it challenging for us to understand why God would have chosen David in the first place. But instead of bashing David, I hope what we can do is see that David is relatable um, and, and find the stories helpful to us in our walk with God as well. Yeah. So Second Samuel, again, opens up in chapter 1 uh, after, after the death of Saul. <laughs> um, it picks up kind of right in the middle of the story where First Samuel left off. And the kingdom is an upheaval. I mean, anytime the king dies, it is uh, a scary time because now there's this power vacuum. Now there's this chance for different people with ambition to make a grab for the throne. And David has been anointed king over Israel. He, he's God's chosen one, but that doesn't mean he's the only one who wants to be king. Right. And so Second Samuel opens up with this lament uh, David lamenting. He writes a song for David, or for Jonathan and Saul. And of course, this is a noble thing because Saul was out to get David like almost the rest of his mm-hmm. life. And he still laments the Lord's anointed. Saul was God's chosen king and David has honored that his whole life. And it's important to remember, like Stephen said, with this power grab, I think I had sometimes forgotten that Jonathan was not the only son that Saul had. I mean, Saul had many, many other children that isn't talked about as much as Jonathan because Jonathan and David were so close. And um, Saul still had a commander of his army that was trying to push for uh, Saul's descendants to become the next king. And uh, in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, David is made king over Judah, and they all anoint him and make him the king. So that's like just part of Israel, like just his tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. Right. So he kind of starts reigning there, but he's not over all Israel yet. Yes. And what ends up happening over the rest of Israel is a a man named Abner. That's going to be an important name. We'll kind of see him take center stage here. We're just going to go ahead and and just say this. Uh, There are a lot 
of names in Second yeah. Samuel, and they all begin with A, and yeah. they're so easy to get mixed up. So if we get mixed up on the podcast, or if you get mixed up reading, it's not a big deal. Um, just just a yeah. disclaimer as we start Very this episode. And I, I, I'll full disclaimer too. I think this is the most show prep we've ever done before. Just so that <laughs> we could, right. just so that we could get all these names straight and get the stories straight. And they're good stories. Um, they're fascinating. They're yeah. they're really cool. There's to a read lot through. of drama if you take the time to trace yes. out the family trees so, of these people, and like there's a lot of family drama. The, this is this is a section of scripture that I encourage people to use a reader's Bible um, that, that doesn't have like the verses break down, but this reads like like a story. And we I use the word story, and it's real. I do believe these stories are real. But Ishbosheth um, is another son of Saul. And Abner, the commander of Saul's army, makes Ishbosheth the king. And so he's over Israel, uh, the rest of Israel. David is king over Judah. And so he's not in Jerusalem yet, but he's in Hebron. And he's there for seven and a half years serving as the king over Judah. And that's in 2 Samuel 2 and verse 11. But as you can imagine, it was God's will not for there to be a divided kingdom with multiple kings, but there was to be one king. That was God's will. And so, as you can imagine, a civil war breaks out between the really the household of David and the household of Saul. That's right. And Abner is going to be the commander of Ishbosheth's army, and a man named Joab is the commander of David's army. Yeah, we're going to see a lot from Joab in all of these stories. Um, so kind of a summary statement that we see in chapter 3, verse 1, it says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reaches a breaking point in chapter 3 when the commander of formerly Saul's army, and now it's Ishbosheth's, Ishbosheth's army, um, Abner, uh, there, there's a some friction between him and uh, Ishbosheth, and he decides, you know what? I'm going to go to David's side. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of rough when you're the king and then your army commander <laughs> just deserts you for the other side of the army. And so he just turns and takes his army with him <laughs> and goes to fight for David. And the tricky thing about that is Abner had done wrong to Joab in the previous chapter. Uh, Abner had actually killed the brother of Joab. And so when he comes around and decides, hey, I'm just going to switch sides and be on your side, Joab, Joab still has a lot of beef with with Abner. You you uh, killed yeah. my brother. Yep. And so uh, Joab goes to David and is like, first off, I think this is a bad idea. How do we know he's not a double agent? You know, How do we know he's not just trying to figure out what our plans are and what our strategies and tactics is? And David puts him at ease and says not to worry about it. But what Joab does, is, and this is going to be so typical Joab throughout the rest of the book. He said, hello, my name is Joab. You killed my brother. Prepare to die. Yes. This is I'm exactly. Sorry, sorry. I couldn't resist. That is exactly what he did, though. I mean, he meets up with Abner, and uh, Joab murders Abner. And it is specifically said in uh, 2 Samuel 4.30, Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And so already kind of in David's political journey, if you will, it's already kind of a, a, a mess and a lot of backstabbing. And David makes it clear in chapter four or in chapter three, excuse me, um, that he did not want it that way. That, mm-hmm. that this was not his will. This was not some type of tricky uh, ploy of his to get Abner on his side and then just have him killed. And David explains that to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he explains it well enough that it actually says in chapter 3 and verse 36, I think I've been saying chapter 4, sorry about that, chapter 3 and verse 36, now all the people took note of it and it pleased them just as everything the king did, all the people, it pleased all the people um, in regard to him clearing his name of the blood of Abner. And so David is off to a good start so far as he's trying to clean up some of the own his own drama in his in his own backyard. Yeah. And so in chapter 4, um, we're going to find one more instance of this where David doesn't have to do the dirty work, so to speak. Um, Ishbosheth is going to be murdered uh, by a couple of guys who go after him. And again, David's you know, not, not the way he wanted that to happen, yeah. but um, it clears the way for David to take the throne. Yeah. And so 
Um, David is able in these books, because of these events, as, as uh, gruesome as they are, to have a clear shot to the throne and be able to take over without having to do a lot of bloodshed yes. um, in himself in all of this. And David is consistent in this. Um, to these two men who had killed Ishbosheth, Rechab, and Banna, he explains to them that even when someone tried to take credit for killing Saul, I punished that man as well, so don't be shocked that you will be punished too. And those two young men are killed right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. But as Stephen pointed out, this gives way to, for David to walk in and take the throne of all of Israel. And so uh, this is Second Samuel 5 verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us, uh, led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So now David is king of all of Israel. I also think this might be the first time he's referred to as King David. It's kind of cool there in, in mm-hmm. verse 3. And uh, he was 30 years old, which is kind of crazy to think about. Stephen, you're closer to 30 than I am. If we round down, um, yep. if we round up, I'm close to 30. It's just wild to think about ruling the entire nation of Israel at 30 years old. And, it is. Uh, but that is the that it was the Lord's will for David. So this is going to be kind of the golden era of, of David's reign. From 2 Samuel 5 through 2 Samuel 10, we're going to see a ton of military victories here. Uh, the Lord is with David. He's blessing David. At the beginning of chapter 5, he takes the city of Jerusalem. This is actually one of the cities where the Jebusites still held uh, this particular city. And David takes it for himself and is going to set this up as the capital. Um, he defeats the Philistines in uh, later in chapter 5 in different battles. And again, he's inquiring of the Lord. He's listening to the Lord. He's not letting this go to his head. And maybe it was all those years running from Saul and all that's happened up to this point that, like, David is ruler, but he's still humble. Right. And that's just so, so key to see as we go through these chapters. And it gives us a list of all the other children that David has in chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. I'm not going to read those names. You can on your own time. But it's just noteworthy. David's got a lot of wives, concubines, and children, more than just like Solomon that we famously know. Mm-hmm. So... In chapter 6, uh, David has he's conquered Jerusalem in chapter 5, and now he's going to bring in the ark. Again, there's still just the tabernacle. There's not a temple yet. We'll read more about that. If you want to read a lot more about that, read First Chronicles. Yeah. It focuses a lot on the preparations for the temple and the worship and all that. But the ark is brought to Jerusalem, and this is a real kind of a dark spot in the story because David doesn't have them do this according to the law, according to what was clearly outlined um, in like the book of Leviticus about carrying the ark. Yeah, Numbers specifies who is supposed to carry the ark. Right. It should have been the sons of Kohath. And they carry it on the ark or on the cart. And a man named Uzzah, uh, the, the, the oxen stumble, the ark shifts. He reaches out to steady it and he's struck dead. Mm-hmm. And David is kind of angry uh, with the Lord here. Um, and is like, hey, what's going on? Um, so there's kind of a three-month delay where they, the house, the ark stays um, in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. And the Lord blesses him. I like that fact. Mm-hmm. And so then, after a while, they, they do. They go ahead and they get the ark, and they do bring it to Jerusalem. And it's this beautiful moment where David is worshiping with all of his might and dancing before the Lord and doing all this... And, and some might say, oh, like, it's kind of embarrassing, like, how intense this is, which at the end of chapter 6, there's this interesting section where Michael, the daughter of Saul, um, who had been David's wife, uh, she was his, one of his wives, um, she kind of insults David. And is like, oh, how, how distinguished the king made himself. Um, and so this is just kind of one of the, we're going to see kind of like, just some final cutting of the ties with Saul's family. And this is one of those instances where after she insults the king for his zeal for the Lord, um, 
this is uh, kind of one of those cutting of the ties moments. Right, and specifically with the lineage, is it's, it's really important to see that in chapter 623. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And so th- there is no tie uh, between David and Saul. And so um, that's a really good way to put that, Stephen. Chapter 7 is a fascinating section. Th- this is one Stephen and I decided we want to spend the most time in because uh, I've got a friend who has a list of like the five most important Old Testament passages um, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is definitely one of them. So um, David is pretty well established in Israel at this point. He has rest from all of his enemies on every side. And so in chapter 7 and verse 2, David says to Nathan the prophet, remember Nathan, now we're going to hear a lot about him. This is what David said to him. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in the house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So we'll stop there for now. David wants to build God an ark, or uh, build God a house. Right. He's, got, he's got the city. Yeah. He's got the ark. But now he's like, wait, this doesn't feel right. Yeah, and I get it. I, I actually get it. If you think about it in David, too, it's like, he, here, he has like this nice stuff, but God's ark is just dwelling in this temporary tent, David's Which feeling more permanent. Granted, it's a really nice tent, yeah. but still. And David wants to do this for God. It is a noble thing. And, and Nathan just gives him full permission to do it. But uh, the Lord goes to Nathan and says, what were you thinking? You, this was not my will. Just because David wanted to do it doesn't mean he gets to do it. He, he still right. needs to consult me. And he's not exactly rebuked for it, but you can tell that like you can't just speak for God without actually knowing. I mean, it seemed good to Nathan, but it wasn't actually what God wanted. And there's just a really important lesson there that, like, we can't just assume. Even godly people can't just assume they know what God wants unless God says it. We have to go to the Word of God. What has God actually said in order to determine what He wants? Um, We can maybe have been serving God for a long time. Like, oh, yeah, that'd that'd be fine. But unless we consult the Word of God, we don't know for sure. And so we need to be really careful about that. But um, picking up in verse 8, he's going to kind of turn this around for David. And this is a beautiful section, um, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this is a very typical way for God to kind of start this process off, is by reminding. That's a really important thing I've seen through the Old Testament. He reminds David where he came from. Um, the Lord makes it clear. You were literally in a pasture. <laughs> you were just a shepherd. And I made you ruler over my people, Israel. And God reminds the Israelites constantly where they were and where he's brought them. And he does the same thing with David here. 
And God shows him, look, I have cut off all of your enemies from you. I have made your name great. Look at all that I've done so far. And the Lord turns around and essentially says to David, I'm not really wanting you to build me a house, but I want to build you a house. Yeah. And there's kind of a pun that happens here because a house uh, can mean a literal physical structure, like a place that you live, but it can also mean a dynasty, a family. And it's going to kind of mean the the second one because he's like, you wanted to build me a physical building. I'm going to build you a lineage a, a, a dynasty of kings are going to come from you. And one of them is going to build me a house. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's going to build a house for my name. We're going to see that fulfilled in Solomon. But it is cool just to see that like the house of David is going to be established here as the place where the kingship is going to come from. From now on, um, God says that his uh, kingdom, his house, verse 16, uh, shall be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever before me. And so this is one of the key passages of the Old Testament because the idea of kingship being connected to David is going to carry us all the way into the New Testament Mm -hmm. and all the way to Jesus. When people in the New Testament say, Son of David, have mercy on me, they're thinking about this passage right here in 2 Samuel 7. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 both tie it to Jesus. Uh, David and Jesus have a direct link between one another. His family tree. That's right. I mean, the, Matthew begins with Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, mm-hmm. the son of Abraham. Yes. And so we talked about how important those promises were to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and how those kind of like outline the rest of the Bible story, at least the Old Testament. Well, man, uh, these promises to David are like the next huge hub yes. of this is where God's going with his plan. And what's also going to happen as you read through the rest of 2 Samuel, but specifically in Kings, First and Second Kings, is th- there is going to be a division in the kingdom, but Judah will stay the same as far as the kingship goes. But there will be a lot of times where they will go into captivity and other places, and you think, oh, is this the end of it? Is there, is there going to be a break in the line? But God is faithful to his word. And even in, in circumstances where it looks like it's over, for David's household, God is able to find a way to preserve the lineage of David just like he had promised all the way through to Jesus Christ. That's exactly um, right. But like Stephen said, there's also some dual fulfillment going on here with Solomon. Solomon is going to be the one that builds the temple. David will actually prepare some of the material for Solomon to be able to do that. And that's where verse 14 comes into play. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Jesus had no sin, but Solomon certainly did. And there will be plenty of times that God has to correct Solomon as well. Right. But Solomon's physical kingdom isn't going to last forever. Right. Nor any of the physical descendants of David that sit on a throne of Israel. But only Jesus is going to be able to fulfill the eternal kingdom part of this promise. Because his kingdom is one that's never going to be destroyed. And you can see this in like later on in Daniel and mm-hmm. other places. But it's so cool to think about this. And actually, uh, the book of Hebrews uh, quotes from verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And it says, which, which of the angels did God ever say that to? Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's really cool. I mean, again, we could do a whole episode or more on just these promises to David. Right. But just remember these promises. Read these several times. This is one of those key passages. And if you can remember the language of these promises to David, it will help a lot of other passages in the Old Testament make sense. There's several of the Psalms that reflect on this. Psalm 2 uses language from this. Psalm 72, Psalm 89. Um, there's just a lot of really cool passages that, uh, that come back to this. So if you're David and you hear these words from Nathan, from God, what do you say? Like, how, how do you respond? And that's really what 7, 18 through 29 is about, is David's prayer to God being overwhelmed at the kindness that God is extending to him. And I don't think we have the time to get into all the ins and outs of that prayer today, but this is a beautiful prayer to, to look over on your own time. This is one I find myself coming back to because I as well feel overwhelmed by the blessings that God has given me. And this is a very appropriate prayer to pray. Uh, to thank our God for everything he's done for us. Amen.
So we get into, uh, again, kind of the end of the golden era of David's kingdom, chapters 8, 9, and 10. There's just a lot of summary battles that happen in here. Yeah, and specifically with the Philistine army, and that was one of the things that was said about David whenever he was anointed is that he was going to be able to take care of the Philistine problem. And that was something Saul was unable to do, but David is able to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the focuses here um, in, in David's victories is defeating the Philistines. Yep. And then David, I mean, we just continue to see him being a benevolent, uh, forgiving king. And in chapter 9, he shows kindness to one of the other sons of Saul, Mephibosheth. Um, and uh, he's lame, he can't walk, and David shows mercy on him. And it's really cool to see that. Uh, we'll see more of Mephibosheth's story later. But um, in chapter 10, there's more military summaries. And um, we see David having success wherever he goes. The Lord blesses him. There are these different progress reports uh, that are kind of cool through this first section of Second Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 36. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 14. Um, and it's kind of like this drumbeat of like, yeah, things are going great. Lord's blessing David. He's growing. He's yes. establishing the kingdom. Yeah. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then chapter 11 happens. The, the narrative shifts. Yep. It goes from this great King David on these military conquests to chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He didn't go out in battle. All the other times he's out there with his men, fighting and and doing what he can to help his men. But this time he decides to stay in Jerusalem. And that is going to be a costly decision for him. Because in 11.2, it says, When evening came, David arose from his bed, and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. And so begins kind of the the downward spiral of David's kingship. Now, it's going to be different than Saul because we're going to see a different reaction in just a minute from David. But this is a tragic story of a man after God's own heart. And I think we learn a lot of things just from this is that one is that we all have to be on guard. It does not matter how many years we've been serving the Lord or how faithfully we've done that, how the Lord has blessed us. If we let our guard down, Satan's after us. Mm -hmm. And he was after David here. David let his guard down. And he does something terrible here. And what's really, I mean, every dimension of this is terrible. But Uriah, who's the husband of Bathsheba, is one of David's best soldiers. He's one of his mighty men. We'll read about his name later on. And David just totally hardens his heart in this chapter and doesn't care who this person is or that she's already married to one of his best guys. And the rest of chapter 11 details how noble Uriah is as David is trying to cover up his sin. Uh, Uriah won't come home and sleep with his wife because the men are out in battle. Um, He gets him drunk trying to get him to do this. And a drunk Uriah is more noble than a sober David Mm -hmm. in this chapter. But he ends up sending Uriah with his own death warrant to the front lines and tells Joab to put Uriah in the heat of the battle and to pull back from him. And so Uriah is killed in battle. And this is a... And then David marries Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. takes the guy's wife and marries her. It's an ugly depiction of David. Yeah. And it's an ugly depiction of sin and what sin will do and how you only get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you're in the biggest pit you've ever found yourself in. Yeah. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you can ever pay. Amen. Now, thankfully, this isn't going to be the end. 
um, for David. But I want to just make a couple of notes here. One is that the Bible will often highlight the failures of its greatest heroes. Um, this, these are real people. This is not just mythology where you have like perfect figures, but it's telling the real story. And David was a man after God's own heart. And he did so many great things. He beat Goliath as a kid and like all this stuff. And he also totally blew it. Mm-hmm. And the Bible has over and over, even with Abraham and the family of Noah and like, I mean, going all the way back, like we've seen tremendous failures from some of the people that the Lord used to do some of the greatest things. Yep. And that just stood encouraging us a humility that like God can use us God can can do great things but we need to never think that it's about us or that we're so great because David was was great in the history of Israel despite his failures mm-hmm. and the scriptures do not try to hide that they kind of highlight it here yeah and I'd also just like to point out that at this point David is sitting looking like a hero right now just in terms of He's married the widow of this great valiant warrior who was actually one of David's mighty men. He's married the wife, and he's almost looking like a hero at this point. And then chapter 12 happens. God has had enough of David looking this way. And so um, in chapter 12, God sends Nathan again to David in just different circumstances now. And Nathan kind of uses this little parable to get David to think straightly. It's kind of a cool little parable if you want to read that in 12, 1 through 4, where there's this little ewe lamb that ends up getting stolen by this man who has more lambs than he can even count. And David's anger burns against this man who stole the little ewe lamb and says that this man should die. And the classic Nathan turning to David in chapter 12 and verse 7 and saying, you are the man you're the guy in this parable Um, and he says God anointed you king over Israel and God will even go as far to say in chapter 12 or say if you had wanted more I would have given it to you had you have just asked but instead you did evil by striking down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taking his wife to be your wife and have him killed with the sword of the sons of Ammon And there's a consequence that comes to David, really two consequences. One, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And two, he says in verse 11, I will raise up evil against your, uh, from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives. Um, And then three, he is going to lose this child that has just been born to him in Bathsheba. And David will turn in verse 13 and say to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And what we can really do at this point is plug Psalm 51. We don't have the time to to turn over there and read that, but do that if you have some extra time where it documents David's true contrite heart for this sin. Um, it's It's a beautiful psalm that I've prayed myself at times as well. Yeah, and one of the things we see here is just such a contrast between the repentance of David and the pseudo-repentance that Saul had back in 1 Samuel, where when he's confronted on a couple of occasions about his sin, yeah, he recognizes that he did wrong, but he's trying to make excuses for it. He's trying to still get honor in the sight of the people. He's not really contrite. Whereas David here, there's no excuses. There's no attempt to, to say, but this, but that. Like He just says, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, at the end of the chapter, when the child dies, he does fast before the Lord and, 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 and really plead to see if the Lord will spare the life of this child that's been born, and the child dies. Which, again, we're going to just start seeing through this whole section, the shadows of Jesus, that David has sinned, and it's the son of David that dies instead of David. There's going to be another son of David generations later who will die not just for David's sin, but for the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there's just little things here and there uh, as we read this narrative that are powerful to think about and look forward to Jesus coming to save all of us because all of us have participated in ugly, ugly sin um, like David. And so going along with the consequences God has handed out, by the end of chapter 12, David's back at war. 
there's no longer peace on every side like there was. God said that the sword shall never depart from your house and that there was going to be evil even in his own household that would rise up against him. And that is the shift in chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Let me just make a, a side note right here. As uh, we, we haven't really talked about First Chronicles a whole lot, um, but one thing that's notable like as you read through First Chronicles is David's sin with Bathsheba, if I, if I remember correctly, it, it's not even mentioned in First Chronicles. And you're like, wait, how can you like leave that out? <laughs> like, whoa. Um, but First Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles are going to, probably be written a lot later in Israel's history. And they're kind of a highlight reel looking back through Israel's history, but highlighting the temple and highlighting some of the good things that happened in Israel's history. Now, there's still some bad stuff in there, but there's just a different purpose in Chronicles. And and really, I think it's outlining some of the good things that happened as a result of faithfulness to God. Uh, if you will remain faithful to God, look at how good things will be because it, I believe, comes in a time in Israel's history where they're not doing so good. They're in captivity. Things are hard. And so that would just be so important for them to see. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to summarize this whole thing uh, in a few words, but the way I've heard it put that I found helpful is that Samuel and Kings are written to chronicle the history of Israel and show the failures of Israel, why they went into captivity, why they had to be punished as a nation for what had happened. And Chronicles is written kind of after all that and is retelling the same story, but looking forward to the hope of restoration, of coming back to Jerusalem and God restoring the kingdom to David. And again, those promises to David that we talked about play a huge role in Chronicles as well. So all that to say, when you're reading these stories, and you're like, why all the repetition? Why we have like two books of the Old Testament that are like the same thing? There's different purposes. Mm-hmm. And the omission of David's sin is one of the kind of the markers that gives us a hint as to why these two accounts are written, some of the different purposes that they have. So coming back to the narrative in 2 Samuel, um, we might go a little more hyperspeed now, uh, but in chapter 13, We're introduced to Absalom, the son of David, and Tamar, the daughter of David, and Amnon, another son of David. So you got two brothers, Absalom, Amnon, and then a daughter named Tamar. Now, none of them, I don't believe, all have the, well, excuse me, they all have different moms, except two of them. David's got a lot of wives, so he's got a lot of children. And just insert lots of backstory that you can study into right here. Yes, exactly. And we're told that Amnon loves Tamar, and he almost like makes himself sick, the text says, because he loved her so much and couldn't really do anything about it. Quote, unquote, love, yes, lust, honestly. Yes. A friend of mine in this section once said, love can wait to give, lust can't wait to get. Mm. And I think that's really uh, notable. That guy's name is Alan Yader. That's good. Yes, it is. And so Amnon has a awful friend named Jonadab, and uh, he's actually described as a shrewd man in verse 3. And they set up this situation where David is going to send Tamar into the room with Amnon. And David did not know what plan Amnon had here. And what's going to end up happening is Amnon is going to rape his sister Tamar. Yeah. Um, half-sister, but yes, still. Or half-sister, like, excuse wow. me. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. And and what's interesting about all this is is you start to see David's sin replaying in increasingly bad ways in the people around him. Yeah. Your sin doesn't just affect you, but now it's it's not David's fault that these other people right. are doing this, but his influence, his negative yes. influence is affecting his family and it's gonna keep blowing up in his face. And by dissecting when it was recorded th- these children were born and a few other things, there's a general age range we would have known that these kids would have been when David committed his sin with Bathsheba would have been anywhere from 10 years old to 20 years old. So my point is these children would have been old enough to have known what David did with Bathsheba. And it wasn't like they were children, like like little babies when that happened. And so often you see children repeating the same mistakes of their, their parents. We saw that back in Genesis. And I think this is why David really doesn't take on a, a hands-on approach with this problem. Um, he kind of takes a back seat with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's a failure on his part, but 
I believe there's part of David that feels like he can't take a front seat because he's made the same mistakes in his own life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just such a sad thing. We're going to see David kind of getting weaker and weaker, especially in dealing with his own family in the last chapters of Second Samuel. And um, we just need to learn the lessons from this. And that just because we have sinned doesn't mean we can't step up in our families, doesn't mean we can't help other people. You know, we need to be humble about that recognize our own failures. But uh, David lets one failure lead to a lot of other failures as we read through this section. So after uh, Tamar is defiled um, in this chapter, um, Amnon has to go on the run for his life because Absalom comes after him uh, to revenge, take vengeance for his sister. And he leaves... um, and uh, he, he, murdered, he, he murders him. Um, Absalom kills him. And then Absalom has to flee mm-hmm. um, because now he's murdered one of the king's sons. And there's a long story in chapter 14 about how Joab kind of wheels and deals, does his Joab thing to get Absalom back to um, Jerusalem. And so he does finally get back, and this is all just going to blow up in David's face. The, the next big chunk of Second Samuel and 15 through 18 is going to be Absalom's rebellion. Mm-hmm. And this is where, again, we're just going to see uh, time after time where David's failure to work with his children and to hold them accountable is just going to, it's not going to be a problem just for David. It's going to be a problem for the whole kingdom because Absalom is going to end up stealing the hearts of the people mm-hmm. And uh, David has to run for his life from his own son. And this is like where the book of Psalms picks up. Psalm 3 is a psalm when David flees from Absalom. This is, in the book of Samuel, you can plug in a bunch of the psalms yes. here. It's really cool to see um, the connections here. But it's so sobering to see David come off of this just golden era where he was doing so well and trusting the Lord and how much, even though David has been forgiven, David has repented of his sin and is back in right standing with God. But the the physical consequences of his sin follow him the rest of his life. And David is still going to be remembered in honor in the story of Israel. Um, It's not that this just erased all the good that David did, but we just see the writer of 2 Samuel highlighting all of the fallout. Of, of David's sin as we kind of go through these chapters. And in this whole, you know, uh, drama, it, it gets even crazier because David had a counselor that he really trusted named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel... Because he really needed one more A name. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, one that has like a thousand syllables in it. <laughs> but Ahithophel was one that the text actually says when he spoke, it was as if God was talking. That That's how good his counsel was. And Absalom is able to sway Ahithophel over to the side of, of, of himself. And you also learn later in the genealogy that Ahithophel is actually um, Bathsheba's grandfather. So there, there's kind of some other crazy things going on with yep. that. Possibly some revenge on Ahithophel's part um, against David. And it's so much so that it, when it's told David that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Yeah. He's terrified. Um, it looks like he's going to lose now that they have this great guy. But this this stab in the back is probably the background for a couple of more psalms. Yes. That David writes Psalm 41 and Psalm 55. And it's going to foreshadow the betrayal of Judas and him stabbing Jesus in the back, so to speak, betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. So again, just all throughout here, we're going to see shadows of Jesus, not only in David's bright moments, but in David's dark moments. Um, That, uh, of course, Jesus is sinless. He he doesn't make the mistakes David makes. But even in David's suffering and betrayal, we're going to see shadows of the son of David, Jesus, and what's going to happen with him as well. And so um, as the narrative plays out in chapters 16 and 17, um, David is going to end up getting a double agent in on the household of Absalom at this point. His name is Hushai. And Hushai is able to sway Absalom away from the advice that Ahithophel had given. And 
if Absalom had taken the advice of Ahithophel, it probably would have worked. But Hushai is able to, to sway Absalom away from that, and it is able to give David the upper hand at that point. Yeah, it seems like the Lord answers David's prayer. Yes. You know, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And um, what Ahithophel ends up doing when it, his advice isn't taken, he ends up killing himself. Again, possibly a hint at his whole game plan was just to get back at David for what he had done to his daughter Bathsheba. And also a foreshadow of what Judas does to himself. Exactly. They both go out and hang in themselves after um, realizing the folly of what they've done. And so in chapter 18, Absalom is killed. Uh, we didn't even talk about Absalom's hair and its role in the story, but he ends up hanging from a tree um, and becoming one of the figures in the Old Testament that is hung from a tree. Um, and it talks about in, Deut- in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that will ultimately also point to Jesus, not because Jesus himself has done wickedness, but because he hung on a tree for us. But Absalom is killed. And David hears about Absalom's death and is just totally wrecked. Um, and the famous lament at the end of Second Samuel 18, um, where he says, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Which it can be easy to forget in the height of the narrative that this is his son. Like At first, you're kind of reading, and you're like, Well, it's his enemy. Why would he care? No, this is his child. He still loves him. And and it's not a shock that he's upset about this. But Joab comes and turns around to him in chapter 19 and goes, Hey, like, why are you doing that? Why are you weeping over your son? Look at all these people who put their lives on the line or, or did lose their life as a result of fighting for you. And yet you're mourning for the enemy? And Joab will rebuke David for having this kind of response and tell him, you know, you need to get out there and, and tell the people that you're thankful for what they did for you. And David will end up doing that. But, uh, uh, excuse me, Joab giving that rebuke will come at a cost for him. Uh, David will end up removing Joab from being the commander of his army and put in place a guy named Amasa, who would have been the, the first cousin of Joab. Yeah. So and also the enemy. guy who had been uh, yeah. helping Absalom, yeah. uh, the commander of his army. So David does kind of pick up the pieces of the kingdom at this point. I mean, the kingdom is back in shambles, and he's got to kind of scramble to reunite God's people again. And he does this by pardoning his enemies in chapter 19, and it shows a lot of mercy um, when he's coming back. And maybe, again, his own sin is on his mind with all this. And the narrative story of Second Samuel kind of ends with, again, kind of a downer, where there's a second rebellion of a guy named Sheba, who they are fearful that this is going to be a worse rebellion than the rebellion of Absalom. But um, this is going to end up being taken care of by good old Joab, mm-hmm. <laughs> who goes out and does so much of David's dirty work, um, or does dirty work on behalf of David, maybe better way to put that. Um, and he goes out, and um, he ends up uh, cornering Sheba in this city, and there's a wise woman who's able to sway the people of the city to, hey, listen, it's either us or get this one guy out. So his head is cut off and thrown over the wall to Joab. And so David um, is back in charge. Uh, this rebellion comes to an end as well. And what happens in the end of Second Samuel is there's kind of a set of uh, a, several append, appendices. Uh, this is kind of a collection of stories that's not in chronological order. Second Samuel 21 through 24, these last four chapters, are a set of six uh, accounts that kind of follow a symmetrical pattern. And we don't have time to get into all of these at the end of the pod today. But they're really interesting to read how they kind of correspond to each other. Uh, the first half of uh, chapter 21 kind of corresponds to chapter 24, both highlighting a crisis that is resolved, um, one to do with the house of Saul and one to do with David's failure, taking a census. Um, the last half of chapter 21, verses 15 and following, talks about David's mighty men, And that corresponds to the last half of chapter 23, Mm -hmm. starting in verse 8. And that talks about David's mighty men as well. Some really cool stories in there. 
But at the middle of this symmetry, we find uh, two famous poems of David. Second uh, Samuel chapter 22 yeah. is basically word for word Psalm 18. Yeah, which is really cool. And that happens a couple other times in Scripture too. Mm-hmm. And if it says it twice... Maybe it's doubly as important as the way to look at that, or it's it's a beautiful poem that deserved more airtime than just once in the Bible. Yeah, and it's David praising God yes. for how God has delivered him over and over and yes. over again. One one of my favorite sections starts off with "The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge." But then in verse five, "For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, the cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me." In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. He was encompassed, overwhelmed, surrounded, and confronted, and God still heard him. Mm -hmm. That is a beautiful thing for us to remember when we are feeling encompassed, overwhelmed, surrounded, or confronted. And even by the results of our own sin sometimes. Uh, He cries out to God for helping the Lord answers him beautiful descriptions of God and the corresponding poem is the first few verses of chapter 23 that record these these are the last words of David kind of a last song that he writes about God's uh, favor of him Mm -hmm. and the Lord making his house stand yes and making an everlasting covenant with him which again going back to those promises in 2nd Samuel 7 that's really going to be the heritage of David that's what will last through the rest of Israel's story is God's covenant with David to establish his house, his children as king forever. Yes, uh, he, end, he ends that section with, will he not indeed make it grow? And of course God will. You will see just it will spread like wildfire as the Israelites, the, the Jewish nation, will go over all over the world at, at, um, throughout the history of the Bible. So that's 2 Samuel. Uh, We've obviously skipped over a ton of things as we've gone through this today, but I hope it's helpful in kind of putting together the story of David's life, both his triumphs and his failures. And again, you can go read 1 Chronicles as well and Mm -hmm. kind of compare those stories to see um, some different things. Again, a lot of overlap in those stories, but also some different details that help bring out different points of emphasis. Yes. And so, Lord willing, next week we are going to get into the books of Kings, it is a, a lot more time that it covers in First and Second Kings, so we are going to do our best to um, communicate that in a in a helpful way, but also in a way that gets the big picture in as well. And so, Lord willing, we'll pick up in David's old age next week. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, uh, we'd love to study with you, 717-581-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information about group studies or other opportunities um, to get into God's Word, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.